This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today's guest is Chris Hoekstra. Now, get ready for this one because this is a fascinating interview. Uh, I am uh, uh, well known to be a right brain thinker, and I'm talking to uh, someone who started out very left brain thinking and has basically uh, done some amazing things in his education and research. And I just think it's fascinating to hear his approach to things now as he still drives the left brain thinking, which is very analytical, but also accepting that uh, so, uh, social uh, uh, right brain piece of, of what makes things click, especially when we're dealing with human beings. Uh, it's a fascinating, as I said, interview. Um, Chris Hoekstra has been somebody uh, that, that I think is just uh, uh, rare in our profession of physical therapy. Uh, you know, there's the Alan Jetties and the Stephen Hunters and, and others in our profession that, that also uh, work in this world, but uh, they're, they're rare and they're, they're few and far between. So I think listening to him uh, deeply and really understand what he's trying to say, I, I just think is so impactful. Um, we talk a lot about uh, uh, research that he's done and, and uh, his, his position as the director of knowledge management. Uh, in a company. Uh, that, that's an unusual uh, title, but it really does talk about how we have all this data and all this information within our organizations, but what do we do with it and, and how do we organize it and how do we use it to make a difference in what we do? It's not just to collect it to say we have a bunch of stuff, a bunch of data. It's how do we use it to, to help uh, become more successful and, and uh, do things in a better way. So he talks a lot about that and, and he's just such an interesting guy. As he mentions, uh, he's got... Uh, uh, two kids that he adopted from uh, Ethiopia uh, as part of his family, and he also uh, volunteers uh, uh, in the sheriff's department um, uh, in in Portland and Oregon, in suburban Portland, Oregon. And so it's just a, a great to have a lot of different perspectives on our society from different angles to really understand uh, how how complicated uh, our world is, but yet how uh, uh, how cool it is too. So. Uh, great interview, so I hope you enjoy it. So um, buckle up, and uh, there's a lot in this. It's a little bit longer than some of my other ones, but if you stick with it, I think you'll find that it's uh, uh, really interesting. So here we go. Chris, welcome to the program. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, as am I. Thanks, Steve. You know, your uh, title is Director of Knowledge Management, and uh, that is not a common position in, in, any, in most companies. So explain what that means. Sure. Uh, it, and I think it's been, it's developed kind of based on some of my interests as well as what we learned from other companies. But if you think in its essence, um, all companies collect data. And, uh, but I would say most companies collect data and don't systematically kind of refine it and then put it back out so people can use it in their decision making. So at Therapeutic Associates, uh, we really have focused on the idea of taking our various data streams, whether that's medical record data, whether that's operational data, whether it's payroll data, even our contracting, put those all together and then 
refine that data and then think about the end user when you're making a decision. So whether that's our executives, whether it's our clinic directors, whether it's our clinicians at the front line or even our front office people, and make sure that they, they can harness the power of that data in a refined way so they don't have to weed through a bunch of stuff that's not useful for them, and we can present it to them at the right place so that they can leverage that data as they make their decisions. So my goal is kind of um, across that board of that process, so making sure the data is coming in the right way and we have all the data we need, making sure we have systems in place to make sure it's accurate and clean and, and we can move it like we need to. And I think the hardest part, but also the most fun part for me is to to interview and spend time with the stakeholders, the people that have to use the data and understand um, what are their data needs, what are the problems that they're trying to solve, and then design a solution so that they can they can get that data when they need to to, to impact their decision. It's fascinating. I, we're going to get more into that as we go through our discussion here today. But uh, uh, to, to back up a little bit, you certainly have pursued a lot of education. You have a PhD in biomedical uh, informatics. You have a master's and a doctoral degree in physical therapy. You have your OCS degree in physical therapy. You have your BS degree in biology. What is your vision uh, uh, for your uh, for your impact with the organization, with all the knowledge that you've gained through these degrees that you've uh, accumulated? Yeah, <clears throat> I'd say my, really I'm, I'm a type of guy that has this concept of find a need, fill a need. And so getting into, let's use biomedical informatics, I didn't even know that was a degree back in 2010. Uh, I knew that I was working in quality. I knew I had a, a strong clinical focus and I wanted our, our therapists to have sound clinical reasoning. And that's, I taught in PT programs and our mentorship in our residency program on that. But my vision really is to to how do we use data in a refined way and so as i as i looked into what was biomedical informatics i came to recognize man a lot of medicine is actually starting to do this the high tech act and meaningful use pushed large hospital systems to to create these positions like um chief medical information officer and informaticists but PT really hasn't done that because we, we haven't been pushed to use our systems as well as, as hospitals have had to. But now we see it coming. And, and really, at the end of the day, what I'd like to do before I retire is to empower physical therapists, even outside of therapeutic associates, um, empower physical therapy organizations to leverage their information systems so they can prove the value of what we do. We say it all the time <clears throat> back in the 80s or back when I started in the early 2000s. You just had really good people and really smart people and really good manual therapist or whatever type of therapist you were. And, and that was good enough to say you you give value. Now we need to prove it. And, and it's not easy to do. And, and my research really looked at a lot of organizations that are trying really hard, but no one has the answer. So I think we're all throwing a lot of things at it, but we don't have a unified approach. So, so my goal is to really explore those veins and link with people so we can develop a model that's that's scalable from the large academic medical centers all the way down to the one and two PT private practices. So uh, let's give everybody a little context here too. So uh, just so our listeners are aware, you've held positions as a staff physical therapist, uh, as a clinic owner director, as an executive staff member at Therapeutic Associates. Uh, kind of what motivates you to follow this path and, and what, what, what's next? What, what are you trying to do and, and, and what impact are you having on the organization? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, any young therapist, uh, when you start out, you have this idealistic view of what you're going to do when you grow up. And I started in TAI that has just this amazing business model of how they can train you to be a business owner. And, and then you work up into the shareholder path and you think, all right, when I do that, I'm going to 
I'm going to help shape the future of the profession. And I came to realize that you partially got to do that, but there was more to know. And uh, so then I, I, uh, our company is really big into mentorship and, and really the APTA is great into mentorship. So I, I received mentorship from as many people as I could in therapeutic associates. I reached outside uh, into the organization, um, into APTA and, and found resources, Alan Jetty and um, Justin Moore and, and people just to kind of pick their brains and the folks at Intermountain Healthcare to just say, wow, how, how are you guys doing it? And I, I came to realize, man, we're all kind of doing our little piece, but there's more to know. Uh, and so that's what really got me in informatics because I started to look at how medical practices were starting to do at large academic medical centers and recognizing, man, we could totally use that in, in PT, but no one's doing it. So it, it forced me to kind of say, well, I have no no more mentors in, in PT to start to ask. And so can I jump a little bit over to this other vein and see if I can learn from them and find a whole new host of, of mentors? And, and kind of that's what got me there. Within TAI, I think my, my and, and what I'm doing now, my goal is really to be a linker, uh, to be less of someone that's going to do my own thing just for my company, um, but to leverage all the great things that TAI has and their vision, um, the work that I do on the outcomes registry, to link with other folks that are kind of doing similar stuff. But could we share our stories so that we have um, some common goals and, and can learn from one another rather than all trying to do the same thing, but all three degrees off of what the other guy's doing. And specifically to physical therapy, do you feel like you're kind of a pioneer out there? Um, you know, I, I, I would suspect that most companies aren't doing what you're talking about and don't have positions like yours. Uh, and, and you, you said that, you know, in the big medical systems they do, but maybe not specific to physical therapy. So do you feel like you're kind of laying new ground out there? Yeah, I mean, it is lonely because there's no one I can reach out to to say, how are you doing this thing? Because no one's doing exactly what I'm doing. I think everyone's starting to do it, um, but that actually is a little bit of treacherous land I see. So I reach out to some organizations and, and software's become much more ubiquitous now to do things like big data. So you have these big organizations uh, or software vendors like Adomo or um, Tableau or even Microsoft has applications and they'll go in. To, to organizations and say, well, if you just buy our million-dollar thing, then it'll do all your – everyone wants to do big data and wants to do data analytics, right? These are really sexy terms. So I think organizations have people that kind of do that. But what I found through my work with TAI, and I've also done some consulting work outside um, with uh, hospital consulting, and even hospital systems don't think this part through. They think that if you just get this, this software, then it's all going to do itself. And to your point – most PT practices and most hospitals don't have people that think about how you have this interface between people and systems and the sociology and external pressures on an organization all play into how people are going to use or not use the information systems that they have. So organizations waste a ton of money on this pipe dream that this, this software is going to fix all your woes when you really need people thinking about these problems and, and surgically applying uh, software programs to them. Yes, I think I think that's kind of what you know. When when I was the CEO of TAI and, and thinking about things, there was always that talk about big data, and we've got to you know use this big data. And and it, you know it, it's it, it's not. It's just not. Uh, you said it well. It's not just putting it in a machine and then having it come out and telling you what to do. Uh, I think most companies struggle to figure out how to use information and, and the data internally. Yeah, and this, I mean, I think ultimately this is where some organizations waste a ton of money, again, because you have these big vendors that will say, we can do all this cool stuff, but at the end of the day, 
like any business decision, it comes down to why are you doing that? So in my consulting role, we'd go to hospital systems and they'd say, we want to use machine learning because uh, we have to. And then when you dig deeper and you say, well, why do you want machine learning? It came down to everyone else is doing it. So we think we need to. And then you'd ask questions like, well, what are the compelling questions you're trying to answer? And at the end of the day, they were more people problems. They actually weren't problems that are amicable to even using machine learning, but people are just doing it because it's sexy and vendors are telling them they need to and the competitors are doing it. Um, so it's, it's, it's more of a strategic process. And I, I see that as my, I frustrate a lot of people because they want to just buy the thing and move on and I'll ask some tough questions, but I, I think we have to ask those first or else you're going to be disappointed if you don't. And so do you look at, at someone like in your role, is it is it more to come up with an algorithm that, that deals with the data or is it more to look at the data and interpret it uh, intellectually? Yeah, so I, uh, I went into informatics doing exactly what you said at, at the start there, that, that I thought if I get into informatics, I understand how to do these regression models and, and um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, artificial intelligence, that um, then I'll be able to answer all these questions like how to best treat patients and how to maximize profit and all of that. And actually, through my master's part of the program, the first three years, that's kind of where I was focused on building these clinical decision support tools and using clinical practice guidelines. And we see that pervasive in the field right now. And I think we need those. But what I came to realize at the end of my master's and what fueled my Ph.D. work was that's actually not it. It's actually we're not you can't just throw an algorithm at it to solve a problem. You first have to say, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? And make sure you really understand that from all the different perspectives and then more important for me is to say, at a certain point in time, you're going to ask people to implement this algorithm in their daily workflow. And it's, it's, we find, and there's tons of research to support this, that people just don't do that. You don't change and start using systems just because you have the system. And so what I was really um, in, impressed with and, and interested in, and my research was fueled by, this, this understanding of what are, the, what are the sociological factors in an organization, the behavioral, uh, the organizational behavior pieces that influence how people use or don't use these systems. So it's more than just the algorithm. That's actually really easy. That is not a hard thing to do. And many of these systems do it point and click now. But it, the hard part is understanding who needs what, what, what's, what are the facilitators and barriers that are pulling on these people that are living their lives and trying to do really good work? And then how can, this, how can you refine these systems to support that work better? Which is a good segue into, you know, in relation to leadership, using data and intuition, or you might call it maybe softer people skills when leading businesses uh, th that are made up of people so, uh, that have emotions and psychological needs. So yep. uh, it can't be all data. No, it's not. And I, in informatics, I found this early on in my, my studies, but I didn't really glom onto it until the end of my master's, but it became the focus of my PhD research. And, and a lot of the research and, and clinical stuff I do now is this concept of what's called a socio-technical model, that basically we have, we have multiple factors in play. And at the core of that is a person, and that person's part of the team, and that team is within kind of the ecosystem of the organization. And so I would say while I went into informatics wanting to be a scientist, I wanted to be a, a, a quantitative scientist, I actually came out of it wanting to be a sociologist. I actually focused on qualitative methods, um, these what are called rapid qualitative design um, resources where you can go in and talk to people and do empathetic um interviewing to understand what's it like to be you and what's the pressures on you and how does your relationship with your boss and your boss's relationship with them, how does that 
play into what motivates you and how you choose to do what you do. And to me, I'm totally fascinated by that. We have other folks in TAI that serve that role. And I've just been really um, uh, tickled with the with the ability to, to connect with now these the hard science and the quantitative side with now the sociological side. And I think there's something really magical there that we're trying to, to develop, and, and we use our expertise to do that together. And you must run into some roadblocks. I mean, you're a scientist, you're a, you're analytical, you, you have uh, this, this detailed knowledge, and with all those facts in front of you, as we can see in our society today, people can look at that stuff and just say they don't believe it, or they look at it totally different. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah, we, so I'll give you an example of what we, we run into in TAI and actually a few of my research is the concept of quality. So if we historically in, in healthcare, we've been able to measure operations fairly refined and actually pretty similar across organizations. You can measure um, efficiency of use of your staff. You can measure how many new patients and visits you get. You can measure net fees and all these sort and profit. That's standardized. But when we would show people quality numbers, like here is your outcome score on some patient-reported quality of life measure, um, they'd look at it and say, all right, that's a number, I'll look at it. But then when you would say, here's how you're performing um, compared to where you should be performing, or here's where you're performing compared to everybody else, now immediately a staff therapist is going to say, so you're saying I'm a bad therapist. They didn't say the same thing if you talk about their operational numbers. And so when you have that emotional tie-in to quality, now you get uh, a staff therapist who, who sees your number. They say, that can't be right, because I, I think of all my patients that love me and all those great patients. We have a recall bias. We all do. So all those patients that I discharged that did well, your number must be wrong. And I'd say well over 50% of the time when we show numbers that didn't look good to, to, to directors and staff therapists, we would get the response, your number's wrong. And because I know what I feel inside. So I think that's a hindrance to doing quality if we want to pivot the conversation a bit towards quality and measuring quality and value in PT is this emotional connection we have to that number. We need to break that because it's just a number and you can't improve it if you never believe that the number is accurate. So instead of, of taking that number and changing behavior, it's almost like there's more time and energy spent on the, the person trying to prove that the, wrong, or the number's wrong. Yeah, that's it's knee-jerk reaction because again we have a recall bias. We're we're emotionally connected to it, and, and I think it's it's part on our organizations too because I talk with other organizations as part of my research and uh, across the country they had the same problem that they they tiptoe around quality because they say man if we go too hard at our people we're going to tick our people off and they're going to leave, but we'll we'll go after them with the with the operations numbers all the time because we just know that's part of being a for-profit business or even I had a hospital system was one of my study sites and they do operational numbers. It's just, but, but they, they tippy toe around quality because again, you're, you're afraid you're going to tick somebody off. They're not going to believe you. And then again, like you said, people don't believe the numbers. And so we just don't ever talk about it. So what's the, what, what's the strategy then? Do you just have to really be uh, uh, strategic in a sense of how to approach that message or how to provide that message to that provider in a way that they won't get defensive and they won't think uh, you're, you're saying that they're a poor uh, caregiver? Yeah, I think that's part of it. it. It is in the message, and we had some good examples of some organizations that have really done it well, uh, and we're trying to model that uh, within Therapeutic Associates. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, at the end of the day, 
it's that the the foundational belief and um, I would go beyond the belief, the feeling of your staff that you care about them, that you value them, that that you're in it for the long haul with them, and, and they're part of something bigger than themselves. So it's if if the staff therapist doesn't believe that at their core, then when you challenge them with something, it's always going to come back to well, you don't love me, you don't care about me. It's just like parenting. And so uh, if you wait to to parent your kids well till they're in middle school, it's it's not going to work very well. But if you give them the nurture and the love and all of that when they're younger. Or with our staff therapists, for example, you mentor them, you tell them how often you care about them, you help them to grow, you find out what invigorates them and you latch onto that. Then you come after them and you say, now I'm the caring, caring individual coming to you and saying, and by the way, we as an organization need to do better on outcomes. And here's an example of you can help us with that. So let's make a plan. Um, so you have to have that background before you can just message something, but yes, it is partly messaging as well. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is you're building trust. So you have to build up a, a baseline of, of giving positive messages and telling them when they're great and when they're doing well, so that if you have to, uh, bring up something that's challenging or maybe negative in their eyes, uh, they give you the, uh, the leash, so to speak of going there because you've built that trust up over time. Yeah, I call it this goodwill uh, bank account. That's what we call it. It's basically you got to build up that goodwill bank account. And I also think who gives the message is really important. So this is something we've tried with therapeutic associates. And I think it's been somewhat successful, but we're going to work on making it more so, is we created a a team of 15 uh, therapists who really understand the data and are driven by the quality data. We call this the measured action team in honor of kind of the informatics principle of trying to move numbers uh, out of just a mathematical thing into an actionable insight that I can do something about. And this this measured action team, are, they're seen as advocates and seen as colleague um, companions. So if they see a number that looks off, they'll come to their colleague and say, hey, I'm your Matt mentor. I'm, I'm responsible for overseeing you. And hey, I just see this numbers off. I struggle with that too. And here's three or four other people that are struggling. Can we meet and can we talk about how we might be able to move this number? Much different than me as an executive who the person's never met before. Uh, and I might have their best interest in mind, but they don't know me as well as their colleague. Um, if I were to come to them with that same thing, it would just be received differently. Yeah, yeah, so true. Are, where are we as a profession in physical therapy with patient outcomes affecting how we treat patients? I mean, have we benefited by using these outcome systems that we've been so focused on for the last couple of decades? Not at all. I would say that I, I knew that intuitively for working for Therapeutic Associates, and, and we, we owned one of them, right? We had the Care Connection system, and I could see it in our own people. I saw the numbers. I analyzed the numbers every which way, and we recognized even though we owned the system and we put all these processes in place to move it, we were, weren't doing any better statistically than anybody else. And I, when I my research went across the, the, the country and looked at different organizations using different quality information systems, uh, I won't name names, but you can name them all because they use them all, and it didn't matter. Uh, so I think the problem is what we found is most organizations collect patient-reported outcomes either because intrinsically they know they need to, or two, that now some payer is requiring them to, to do it for reimbursement. But the funny thing is these payers that are requiring it actually don't look at the scores. Uh, they just look that you've collected it. At the end, they might use it as a determination to, to discontinue care. But the therapists aren't looking at it. The therapists are just looking at, did we collect it? Yes or no, because that is what gets me paid. 
Um, and, and I think we've also fought against, we probably, we have hundreds of different patient reported outcomes that we could use. We can't agree on one uh, or a handful that, that we're, we as an organization are going to lean into because we're afraid we're, someone's favorite one is going to fall off the list. And so now we we don't measure it well. We have lots of registries cropping up, but people still don't know how to use that data well. So we're throwing more money at it, but we actually aren't getting really any better outcomes by and large. Some organizations are doing a good job of it, but many aren't. So how do we get to the next level? What, what What's the what's the solution to the dismal uh, outcome you just uh, reported on? Yeah. I, well, I think so. We have the deck a bit stacked against us because uh, if you look at medicine, they're doing it much better than we are at systematically using their information and quality measures, but they did it because they got billions of dollars in meaningful use back in the early 2000s. So you and I paid for hospitals to get good at that. Put a different way, you and I paid to build Epic. Um, so Epic was built on taxpayer dollars. Uh, PTs don't get that. And so we've picked up the use of information systems. We use quality because we intrinsically think it's good, not because we were getting incentivized to do it. Um, and so I bring that up because we're doing it, but we're all doing it out of the goodness of our heart and we're all trying really hard, but we're not coming together. So I think my answer is you need to get a large group of people coming together to say, we all found, fundamentally believe this is how we're going to define value in physical therapy. And then by extension, here's how we're going to measure quality. And we agree on this and we're all going to push this forward. And when we do payer contracts, we're all going to do it under this common premise. And do we have to all agree on one outcomes measure? Jury's still out. I would say probably not, but you have to have a short list for sure. But we need to, we need to, we need to take the, the quality measurement um, responsibility away from the payers and put it back in our hands. Because right now we have payers quote unquote, measuring quality or taking our quality measures. And they're not, they never will be. They're just using it as a utilization management tool. We need to own quality and value. And we need to stop patting ourselves on the back and saying, we're great and our patients love us and, and get real on measuring value. But before you can measure value, you have to define it. And if I define it one way and another corporation defines it another way, well, then we're just going to dilute the market with lots of different uh, definitions of value, and we're not going to move the payers that way. So now APTA uh, uh, sponsored or, or created an outcomes registry. Um, and, and where is that now? Is that still um, uh, strong? Is it, is it going to make it? Where, where are we at with that? Yeah. So, I mean, it, uh, so I've, I've been involved with the PT registry from before it was a thing, and I'm on the scientific advisory panel now. And I, and I think it's done some really great things for us to do some common definitions for us to get the word out about measurement. Um, I think where it, it, it hasn't really become a business success, uh, where it can be this freestanding autonomous thing that's self-sufficient, that the the PT or sorry the APTA dues aren't having to subsidize. And, and so, like any business. Uh, it's struggling to find its um, its client base. And I think the other <clears throat> problem is PTs right now aren't a willing participant because MIPS, the CMS MIPS version, we're still voluntary for the most part in that. So you don't have a lot of people just running to the register saying, please do it. Um, this might not be a popular view, but the 9% cut that's coming for PT services right now, CMS, I think, was smart when they did this because they're going to do the 9% cut, and what's the only way you can whittle it back if they, if they pass it? Well, you have to whittle it back on incentives. Where's the only place we can get incentives? It's through MIPS. 
And so this is why the, the CMS is doing it. And, and I think that's one of it is payers have to push us to do it. We're always going to follow what the payers do. Um, so the registry, I think, will get more customers. But where the registry, I think, um, got divided, and this I want to be careful here because I want to I support the registry, but also I think where they got divided and why they exist is they started to really limit down the number of measures because they said, we got to get a select number. We got to start somewhere and we're going to tick some people off, but we have to do it. But then when they found they weren't getting many customers, why weren't people coming? Because they said, you're not using our favorite tool. So then the registry said, okay, we'll just, we'll, we'll accept a bunch of other tools. Um, so I think they have a divided purpose right now and, and they're working through that, um, but that's limited their their impact. So do you think a solution in the long run is to come with one outcome system that everybody agrees to? And is that even possible? Yeah, not a system. I think we can all use our own systems, but the systems need to all agree foundationally on what's the definition of value. And then again, by extension, what's the definition of quality? Quality is going to equal value on many of the levers that we can pull. Um, so we have to have that agreement across the, the organization, or sorry, across the, the APTA. Um, but one system, no, 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 no. And I think, unfortunately, this is what the vendors are trying to do. There's probably four main vendors that do quality improvement systems right now still in the market. And each one of them, I've, I've listened to their dog and pony shows because we're, we're considering them right now. Um, and they all will tell you, I'm the best. Here's why I'm the best. But none of them talk together. Um, to me, that's you're totally missing an opportunity there. If those vendors got together and said, we're each going to challenge one another to do this one thing better but we've all agreed on what that one thing is. Uh, to me, that's amazing. So that, that's what we're starting to try to do now. Um, we have uh, a conglomerate of a few of the large um, independent practice associations around the country have gotten together to say, how do we want to define quality? How do we want to define value? How do we want to use outcomes in the future of, of payment contracting and all of that? And then how can we use our collective um, prowess to then go to these vendors and say, come along around this vision. Don't make your own vision. Come along our vision that's coming from the PT organizations and then take that to payers to say, here you go. We've got a compelling model of value-based care. We've got a few information systems that are all going to deliver upon that. And now payer, you need to come to us in defining incentive strategies, alternative payment models, and just reimbursement strategies that reward value-based quality care versus the fee-for-service that's dying out. So how far out are we from that? Is that uh, you going to make it in your career lifetime? <laughs> that's that's my prayer daily. I would say that we move it forward. I, I would have said a year ago <clears throat> I, I was skeptical, and, and this really made me question whether I wanted to stay in PT, frankly, because uh, I'd say, man, the burden is so large. We're so fragmented in what we're doing. Maybe I jump ship because I can start to see medicines doing it better. Maybe I jump into the medical consulting world and um, see if I can't make movement there. Uh, what really brought me back, though, is this this group with this uh, this collective of IPAs. You you have a large group of people saying, "Man, we're so close. Can we just talk? Can we just get together?" And this group's all asking the same thing. We don't know exactly how to do it, but we're motivated to do it together. But that's a fraction of the outpatient PT world. Um, I think payers are gonna have to come and we've, we've had lots of great conversations with payers and we start to, they say in, in concept, we totally agree with what you're doing. My frustration then is they say, but our adjudication systems can't do that right now. So let's talk in five years when we get a new system and then we can adjudicate claims based on value, even though they're clamoring for value right now. 
Um, and the last thing I would say, what brings me the most hope is PTs finally realizing, get out from under the payer and go to the employer. Um, if you can go to the employer and that becomes the people we talk to, one, you give them a very compelling model that breaks their current cost burden that's unsustainable. Um, but two, now we have much more freedom in how we can how we can help patients because we we really do MSK better than any other provider group, or at least we do it cheaper and we can collaborate with the other provider groups. Um, so I see lots of organizations starting to do more of this, and it's only going to increase as the cost of healthcare goes up and employers start to say, I'm not going to do that. I want to at least know what I'm spending my money on. I'm visualizing Mike, Mike Eisenhart standing up right now, clapping very loudly because I think he's been talking about that for a long time. But and he's not the only one. I think we all recognize that that's a, that that's a great strategy, and and the more of us that do it, and then you bring up the point where, which is my big thing that that I've believed in for so long is the collaboration and the getting together with people, and you know, giving a little to gain something bigger in the long run. It's just. Uh, you know, it's it's easy to say and easy to talk about, and so hard to do if people would just, um, you know, come to the table and and uh, have an open mind and give a little. Uh, perhaps we could bring those groups together to agree on these basic points that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge fan of of Clayton Christensen. He just died a couple of years ago here, but a great. He's a Harvard Business School professor, and um, his concept of the innovator's dilemma. And and I, I I bring this up with our executive staff a lot, and it really is a focus that drives me. But if you think of this, companies that are really successful, his 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 thesis would be companies that are really successful. Let's use the old uh, the the Oldsmobiles or the Xeroxes that they grew. And then they recognize they needed to change, but it's hard to jump off of what's worked for so many years when it's still kind of working. And so what these groups do is you just kind of ride that curve right back down into the beach, where what you have to do is you have to think, man, we can feel it slowing down. We're, it's getting harder. We have to spin off side of our company to start to think of doing something different, or else you're going to get leapfrogged by all these nimble um, innovators. We see it in PT right now. So you see personal trainers coming up. You see um, other health professionals trying to limit. You see hospital systems trying to consolidate. So if we don't, if we don't innovate, um, we have, we're going to die. And the problem is we've been successful. Many, a company like TAI has been successful for years, right? Since the fifties. Um, so how do you take a company that's really figured it out well and say, ah, change your paradigm, but change your paradigm before you're forced to? Um, man, we have to do that because if we wait till we're forced to, someone else is going to force us to do something we don't want to do. Yeah, that's that's well said. I was uh, lucky enough to uh, see uh, Clayton Christensen um, in person uh, speak at, at an Athena um, uh, event at one point, and I, I just remember sitting there and a lot of light bulbs were going off, and yes, yes, that's it, that's it, yeah. you know, type of thing. So, yeah. yeah. So where do you think businesses go wrong and, and miss opportunities uh, with utilizing the, that they, the data that they have internally? Yeah, I, so one, and this is not unique to PT. I saw it in, in large academic medical centers as well. And I, I see it at OHSU where I do work now. Um, you have this concept of lazy data collection. And, and what I mean by that is it's so easy to collect data right now. An organization doesn't have to do the hard strategic work first. They can just be like, cool, let's, let's get this big data warehouse. Let's put this Domo system over the top of it. It'll give us a bunch of numbers. We'll have somebody kind of manage that. And let's just collect everything. At the end of the day, we use these terms like data warehouse, 
uh, data mart, data lakes is the new sexy term. But at the end of the day, if it's lazy going in and you have no strategy, I've, I've told my executive staff, I would call it a data cesspool. That it's just all this data. There's probably some really great stuff in there, but you have no clue where it is. You haven't organized it to answer compelling questions because you never did the hard work ahead of time. And so businesses uh, have a false sense that if I just collect more data, then I'll just turn into Amazon magically and I'll have all these insights because I have so much data. And yeah, you can put a lot of smart people at your data and they can make sense of it on the back end, but that you put a lot of hamstrings in their way if you didn't think about it ahead of time. And then more importantly, back to my socio-technical term, your organization is not ready to use the data. So who cares if you have the most compelling artificial intelligence that's giving you amazing insights? If nobody uses it because they don't believe it or it's not put into their workflow where it's easy to use, well, that's of no value to your company. You've wasted millions of dollars on something that is, is of limited value. That's Again, it's not a technology problem. That's a people problem. Yeah, and you look at the amount of money that's been spent in exactly doing that, it's probably absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. And like I said, it was, it was, we paid for it. So we paid for hospital systems to, to do this poorly through meaningful use that it was taxpayer funded back in the early 2000s. It had to happen. We had to get a change from paper to, to computers so we could ever do it. So I'm not poo-pooing the system, but PT got left in the lurch. And so now we're footing all the bill. And so it's more important for PT companies to be smart about how you're spending your money because we don't have taxpayers funding it for us right now. We we have to be smart to spend the limited resources that we have. But at the same time, it's uh, I, I work with our CEO and COO and CFO regularly to, to invest in some of these systems. And, and fortunately, they've stepped with me here and they trust my decision, but these systems aren't cheap. So sometimes you have to get good systems. If you've done the hard thinking work, you have to pay for systems to manage your data. We try to nickel and dime it and do it in Excel and these backwoods spreadsheet things, but it, you get to a certain size where you can't do that anymore. So you do have to spend on the technology, but it has to serve a strategy um, rather than just being freestanding technology. Fascinating. So uh, let's switch gears here a little bit. Uh, now, you've done some research on PTs and other health professionals using scribes. So what, yep. what were your findings there, and, and what strategy should we consider with patient care going forward? Yeah, so I'm part of an AHRQ-funded uh, study right now. For the last three years, we've gone around the country and explored medical scribes, not PT-related, with the goal of defining what's safe use of medical scribes, how do medical scribes need to be trained so that they're they're safe and effective, and then how do, what do organizations need to think about to, to implement scribe programs. So as, as I started this research, um, it got me thinking, man, why don't we apply this to PT? Because we were seeing a lot of the same things. These providers would say, I hate documentation. I would have quit years ago if I didn't have a scribe because the bane of my existence is writing down what I did. I just want to help people. That's why I went to all those years of medical school. And I felt the exact same way. Um, but what we found was kind of like with the data analytics stuff that you need to have a strategy. Like, why are you using scribes? How are you going to define the ROI on scribes? What's okay for a scribe to do and not okay to do? You can't just throw a scribe in and say, chart for me and help me out. Cause one, they don't, the, the scribe doesn't know what to do. And two, you might end up getting them to do stuff that they shouldn't do. So you haven't defined it. All that to say, we, I brought it to physical therapy and I trained a few scribes, uh, sorry, a few aides to scribe for me um, it, using some of these premises we got out of our study. And it was fascinating for me. I, I've Historically, I've, I've really struggled. You see an evaluation and you 
you like evaluating. That's why we all went into PT school was to, to deal with those complex problems. But you find yourself hating evaluations because then you got to document. It's your longest note at the end of the day. But after I trained my scribes, I told many PTs, I'm like, man, I could, I could evaluate 8, 10, 12 patients a day. It's cool. I, I could totally do this because I walk out of the room. My note's all done. I've been totally engaged with the patient. I talk to the scribes, and the scribes are like, this is why I wanted to be an aide because I want to see what it's like to be inside your brain. I love helping patients with exercise and stuff, but when I get to see how you problem solve and I get to see how you empathize with patients, they love it. And so I think it's great. But now back to the people problem, I've tried for three years to get in therapeutic associates even to get people to uptake. And we, we've gotten a few, but it hasn't been pervasive because many people are resistant to change. Many people see it as a barrier. It's something new. And we don't know how to train these people. And it's given up some trust. And so I think it will help us as we, as we start to get squeezed on the number of patients we have to see in a day. Uh, I think we can use these folks. Um, but again, it's a it's a conceptual problem. It's a people problem that we got to work on if we're going to use it. So, in the research, did you did you and your actual experience of doing it, uh, is there an ROI on it? I mean, is it affordable from a financial perspective to pay somebody to do that? It, well, yeah. So, I would say two things. Um, in the in the physician world, they typically say if we can see an extra one to two patients in a week, that's going to pay for our scribe. Like it's not. They have higher margins that we do. Uh, we've done the math, and if, if we pay a, a, an aide, we're already paying an aide. So if we have them scribe us, and that can help me um, save on some documentation time, and I could fit another patient in where I would otherwise be documenting, one, the PT is going to like that, but two, you get an extra patient in. And we typically can pay an aide salary with an extra one to two patients a week. We can pay an aide salary pretty easily. Um, so I think the ROI is there. But I would add on to it, turnover. So if you turn over a physical therapist, the cost to you is two to three times their salary, just in lost revenue, training the new person, replacing them, all of that. And so if you take, you take that number into there and we can save some PTs leaving us because they feel like they're taken care of on the documentation side, well, now the ROI equation is, is much cleaner. Now, do we need to scribe like a physician where they scribe every one of our notes? Absolutely not. In a daily note, our PTs should be taught, and this is a lot of my role, is to teach therapists how to document efficiently um, so that the medical record doesn't get in your way, but it's a tool. But also, you're charting when the patient's there, not at 10 o'clock at night in your pajamas. Um, but we have to find a way, I think, in evaluations and reevaluations where we can use them. And then if you use that as scale, there's not a ton of those um, in most clinics, so you can work around that. This is the kind of thing where I just scratch my head because as a clinician once myself, I agree with you. The most exciting thing about our career is the evaluations and reevaluations and doing that. So if I could have a way to make that more fun and decrease my time of doing something I hate, it, it's just mind-boggling to think that we can't, we can't get over that hump. It, 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 it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I did a study. So when I, I trained these two, I trained a scribe and I, I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay for the scribe. So I actually took it out of my department budget for three months and I, I trained the scribe. I got him ready. I had him scribe for me. And then I went to three of our clinics within therapeutic associates. I went to one clinic. I thought that was really going to use him well. I thought one that I was questionable. And I went to one that I thought, yeah, they're not going to use him. And if they panned out, that's how they used him. I didn't tell them that's why I picked them that way, but that's why I did it. And we had one of the organizations that they really gave it to their front office to say, figure this out. We want to use this guy. We all see the value. And they came back at the end of the three months like, wow, that was really awesome. 
Um, he went away to PT school, so it had to end. But they're like, yeah, we could see the value in this. To your point, we like doing evals and we like not having a document. The second one, they kind of used him a little bit, but it was different to their workflow and they, they didn't fully ingrain him into the workflow. And so they kind of said, yeah, that's good, but we wouldn't pay for that. And then the third one, they never really used him. He would try to find his way to get in there. He'd say, hey, I'm here to scribe for you. And they wouldn't end up using him. And they were like, yeah, that was of no value. So three clinics in the same company had three different perspectives. And again, a lot of it is just because change is difficult and, and we have lots of barriers to that, I think. So how do you how do you not go home at the end of the day and scream after that experience? It seems like yeah. uh, seems yeah, like a that's, no-brainer, that's, right? Yeah, and that's the hard part. Isn't it? But then, and that's probably what's pushed me sometimes to say, again, man, could PT ever do this? Because maybe we're just too ingrained. But I ask myself then, all right, if they don't buy in, I think I have a, a solution that would be compelling. I've been a clinician for almost 20 years. I've, I've worked in the trenches. I, I think I, I get it, but people aren't getting it. I get frustrated and I say, well, it's on them, right? But at the end of the day, if I'm an executive in a company and I'm a leader, no, it's actually on me. Like I haven't made it compelling to them. I haven't helped them to see that this can change their life for the better. Um, so I, I have to convert that frustration into a challenge to say, no, it's my fault. And, and how, do I, how do I get uh, people to kind of come on? And, and little by little, we're, we're definitely making gains. But what I found is that's me connecting with other parts of our company that gets the movement. So I've connected with our education department, with our residency, with our younger therapists, just to bypass the people that already have their, their ways of doing it and go to our, our first year PTs and say, hey, here's a different way of thinking. What do you think if you do this? And you can see a lot of energy there because they're not ingrained in their ways. And so you just got to get creative. Yeah, what a positive mindset. That's that's definitely the way to approach it. And and th that takes the long uh, the long term vision too. I mean, if you're going to change something, uh, you start at the beginning. You know, it's going to take uh, a generation or two to get to the point where it becomes uh, that's the normal as opposed to changing something that's been so ingrained. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and are are you uh, in relation to that, but also uh, back to the outcomes thing as well? Are you optimistic or pessimistic on the 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 progression of us only using procedures that uh, uh, that we have evidence that say actually work? Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so I would say yes. Um, I believe firmly that we need to have. Um, uh, evidence, I'll call it evidence, that, that supports what we do, uh, just because we need, we need to be the most efficient um, stewards of the healthcare dollar. And so we can't be doing a lot of superfluous care that's not showing value. Um, now, do I say that every, every patient seen can only be treated with something that has uh, a randomized controlled trial backed or a systematic review backed clinical prediction rule? Absolutely not, because we know science hasn't caught up with a lot of clinical care. But I think the flip side is true also. We have a lot of care that's done because that's what I learned when I was in PT school or that's what my first director did, so I do it that way. And we need to challenge that. Not that it's bad, but I would just ask to say, why are you doing it that way? Why aren't you doing it another way? And um, can you step with us to say, then let's prove that. And we started to play with that a little bit in TAI is to say, all right, well, let's, let's just prove that. Is If you do it according to one way, is that better than another way? We've been challenged on this recently, and this is a paradigm shift in healthcare or in PT right now, but I think all of healthcare is thinking of pathology, MSK pathology, let's focus there, 
is is not just a biological problem. We we recognizing that this has a, a psychological component and a sociological component as well. So we get a lot of newer grad PTs coming out who have been trained in this what we'd call biopsychosocial approach to management of musculoskeletal problems, and we're feeling the pinch of that because we have clinicians like myself who were not trained in that, and we were trained. I was trained in the the NIOMPT model, which is very heavily biomechanical. Um, foundation for everything that I do. And now you get folks coming out in these biopsychosocial models that have pretty prescribed ways. If you measure this thing, then you do that. So I think that the real value here is let's get those people together and find out how we can do it better rather than I think sometimes we just get these turf wars. I lived through the turf wars of the CPGs of the early 2000s, and we had lots of these conversations in NIOPT and in academia because I lived in both worlds. Let's not fight. I think both are right, but uh, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, and we're just, we get on our ivory or our, our hill to die on and battle against one another. And I think that's a bit of a commentary on our so social system right now. Everyone's fighting against the person they disagree with versus saying, let's talk. So we need to do more of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's that black and white thinking that I talk a lot about that, you know, it, it's it's okay to uh, consider other options and other ways that maybe uh, in the long run will, will have you change and have you do something in a different way. But you have to be at least open to doing something slightly differently or it's, it's never going to change. For sure. Yep. Yeah. So uh, now you said this before that you're involved a lot throughout the company, not just in... Uh, um, you know the data data analytics and all that, but also in in and uh, mentoring people and leadership development and so on. So, what area of leadership development do you think that we that companies need to be uh, spend more time on? Uh, well, I think t uh, two. Uh, I think one, and this is actually part of my research came out to this, and we have a, a study that's hopefully getting published here in the next month or so. Um, but we really looked at helping helping managers. So let's take a PT director as one one definition of a leader. Um, helping those people uh, have some really refined structure in their day. So I think we've done a disservice to our our treating directors, those directors who are also treating patients, by asking them to be a full time clinician and a full time manager and everything else that we ask them to do. Just we don't have that, that focus capacity anywhere. And so we have to help them to prioritize to say, um, here's the things that need to get done. Let's limit down the things we hold you accountable for, and let's give you space to do those things. So helping them to prioritize their day and help them to kind of live out that role of a treating clinician practitioner, uh, sorry, a clinician manager. I think the second one, though, and this is where I've probably morphed a little more of my uh, focus over the last um, couple years is on that that next level up of how do you how do you get in an organization a leader to be a um, to work on that ecosystem to work on that unseen stuff but it's the relational piece and, and uh, Lori Dillon who works in our company now um, is our uh, director of professional development and she has really challenged us all to think of an organization as this living organism that's made up of a lot of um, living beings and it's not just a machine and so challenging our our leaders to to have those soft skills but but also to always be thinking about how do i maximize the people side of the company not just the the doing or the productive side that's probably a little easier measured yeah that gets back to the uh the left brain right brain um thinkers and 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 I do think um, uh, I've said this before many times, but in conversation with Daniel Pink, we talked a lot about how in the last few decades that there's a lot of left brain thinkers that run companies. And so it's very analytically and finance driven. 
where a lot of companies in the future, he feels, and so do I, that the right brain thinkers need to come and, and lead companies as well. And as you just so eloquently described, the analytics and, and the data and all that is so important. But without that right brain approach to that stuff, uh, you, don't, you, don't, uh, you don't maximize what the potential is. Yeah, and, and you need the structure to call it. I think we all have left side and right side. Now, I would say I went in being the most left brain of left brain thinkers, and I came out of my PhD pre program being much more a sociologist, more right brain thinking. Um, so one, I think it's somewhat flexible. You have a proclivity one side or the other, but I think it's a bit flexible. But I've come to realize that it's, it's incumbent on the leaders. Now, this is the upper leaders of the organization to challenge our leaders to think on both sides. And so if we're, if we're just asked to to think where we would normally think based on our pre-inclination, you're going to be limited. But if, if your organization forces you to do some right brain problem solving and some left brain problem solving, recognizing who, who in your organization maybe leans one way or the other and how you need to interact with them, then you're going to do much better than, than just saying, well, we got to hire more right brain people or we got to get rid of some of our left brain people. I don't think that's true. I think it's the organization trying to bring out of them the left brain and right brain thinking and putting, I think this for me is the, I, I push this with our organization probably more than anything else lately, this idea of let the conflict happen. I, 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 conflict a lot with a Lori Dillon because she thinks differently than I do, or I conflict with our CFO because they think differently. That conflict of letting that thing happen and putting some, some experiences in place for your leadership where they have to let their vein come out and they have to conflict with one another but not do it personally, um, you need to have that happen. But again, I, I think a condemnation on our current society, we don't do conflict well. You just try to convince someone why they're wrong and you're right. That's that's not good leadership. We have to find that collaborative space where we where we push on one another to find something greater. Yeah, you said that so well, and it's just it's the plea for diversity in thinking. Uh, you know that uh, you know I don't have all the answers, and I do have biases that 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 I'm aware of. So if I bring somebody else in with a diverse opinion or a different approach to the same issue. Uh, you know, at the end, we may not uh, both get what we wanted, but something in between may be the best solution. Yeah, and it's better. I think in Lori Dillon has challenged me to think of this, that collaborative is not just collective. So collective is just you get a bunch of people together and you compromise and you find something that this term satisficing is a big um, a big term in the computer science world, where basically you're not going to find the best option. You're finding the one that's the least bad. That's not what we want. Collaborative basically says there's actually something entirely new that no one can understand until you get together and you guys work on it. And then this new thing bottles, bubbles up that wasn't in the middle and wasn't uh, um, just sacrificing, but it actually was built upon these different perspectives designing something new. Yeah, going into something realizing that the solution may not even be on your radar and you need to be open that that's okay it's it doesn't mean that someone's smarter than you or better than you it's just that collectively you came up to something that oh my gosh you know th this is awesome i couldn't have done this on my own yeah and if we talk about engaging millennials that's what they want like if you want to get the younger people in it's being part of something bigger than yourself not being the smartest person in the room which maybe was more my generation um, or the hardest working which was maybe was a generation before me it's we want to be a part of this team that makes amazing stuff together. Like that to me is the future of what we're going to do and engage our workforce now. And it's that collaborative thinking that'll do it. Amen. Amen. You said it well. So uh, switch gears here again a little bit. Uh, now that we've established you really don't have enough to do, 
<laughs> you also volunteer uh, in the sheriff's department. So tell us about that experience and what's your motivation there? Yeah, so I've done that for the last nine years. Um, uh, I, I recently resigned because my family's going to be moving, so I had to resign, but it, that's in the last month. And one of the hardest things of, of this move that I'm doing was to actually stop doing that. The reason I chose to do that was it's all about service. I see, I, I like doing something that other people don't like doing, and I like being a voice of people that don't have a voice. And to me, volunteer um, law enforcement was the best way to do that, to just, um, to, to be able to, one, understand how law enforcement works has been just inspiring to me and to to really get a different perspective that I never would have had without doing all the training and spending time with them. It's been truly fabulous. But um, service and getting to use a different part of my personality. It's helped me as a leader, frankly, because I'm, I'm usually, I historically had not been one who was more confrontational, but when you get in a tough situation in law enforcement, you sometimes have to use this command presence where you have to get something done now. But at the same time, then you need to change very quickly. And, and it might be two seconds later, you have to be compassionate. So you now have to dial down that, that energy that came up to control the situation. And now you got to hug a little kid. Now you got to take care of this, this battered spouse. And so it has really stretched me as a person. Um, but I think as a leader, it's actually made me better because I can understand how I can dial up and dial down different aspects of me. So it's, it's been nothing but a great growth opportunity. I certainly have gotten more out of it than I've given, but at the heart of it, I started just as a service uh, offering and, and it has been a great, a great blessing. And so you, just so that our listeners are aware, you actually uh, ride in the patrol cars and and go to scenes of incidences and, and deal with it. And, um, you know, you're, you're right there in the thick of it. Yeah, I'm a sworn deputy. So I, we we have gone and you have all, you have all arrest authority that a regular full-time officer would. No one knows when I'm there that I'm a reserve. I look just like all the full-time guys. So, um, you're in the same peril that they are and, uh, you have the same arrest authority that they have when you're doing it. So we have a lot of training to get us ready for that. But unlike the full-time guys, we don't do it every day. We just do it regularly on, on our ride-alongs. And at the risk of putting you on the spot here on a podcast, um, how do you now view, uh, you know, this conflict that we're having right now in our society with uh, uh, law enforcement and, um, you know, all the all the pieces that go to that? Do you have a different perspective having done what you've done now? I do. And I, I have uh, I have two adopted boys that are uh, from Ethiopia. So I, we're a mixed race family. So this this has really been gut wrenching for me these last few months of starting and not starting with, but I think the head coming to with the George Floyd incident and watching some of that video. Um, but I have my perspective is is. I think I live the the eternal American struggle or world struggle right now inside of me because I could see um, the plight of George Floyd. I could see the, some of the officers, the officer that did what he did on his neck, horrible officer. But I could see why some of the things, if you watch the videos, you can see, I see how their training got them to do that. I see why they did that. There's actually more to the story than what, what maybe the, the news is showing. Um, and then at the same time, um, I see it just as a, as a perspective, just from a, a, a U.S. citizen and kind of how we do that. So, yeah, I think that this this comes to what I said earlier. Man, if we could just get differing perspectives to come together and actually respect one another and say, you know what, I need some law enforcement people to talk about why they do what they do and the struggles that they're in so that I can understand their position. And then I need to get some people of a different skin color than me to come talk to me so that I can understand their perspective. It's about understanding perspective and coming together. I think right now where we're at is a dangerous place 
um, because it's really breeding dissent. It's really breeding um, dissonance and, and, and kind of get into your camp where I use this term tribalism, where you're going you're gonna to just kind of say who you are and I'm going to convince everyone that I'm right. Man, that's a dangerous place to be. And I hope we, we from the hurt comes this understanding that we need to understand differing perspectives before we can develop a, in our mind what the solution is. We're so quick to just say, I think this is what we should do. That's myopic. And we would all know as business leaders, that's not how you make a decision. You get informed and then withhold judgment until you understand all the perspectives. But we're really not taking that advice as a country now. And um, I'm, in a, I'm in a unique position that forces me to do that because of my role as a mixed race dad and a law enforcement officer and a physical therapist. Um, but man, I think we can do it, but uh, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. And it's just that, that approach where, you know, so much of the dialogue in business or in society today is looking for uh, uh, affirmation to my beliefs, as opposed to information of how I can change and get better. Yeah. Not, not, a, not a way for us to lead or to live for yeah, sure. Exactly. So now I understand that uh, you are pulling up stakes and moving your entire family from Portland, Oregon to Nashville in the next month. So why, yeah. why move the family and make a big change like that at this stage in your career? Yeah, I think, um, and I'll speak frankly, I think some of it has been brought on by um, by all this unrest we have right now and seeing in, in the Northwest how I feel we're failing at having conversations. There's a lot of anger and everyone has their right to get their voice out, but we're no closer to a solution. We're so much farther away from a solution now. Everyone's just building their camps. Um, and, and so I think I'm not, I'm not pulling out to go to the, the backwoods East, we're going just outside of Nashville, where I've really been drawn that there is a true Southern hospitality. Every time we've gone down there over the, the last couple of years, I see that people talk. Uh, my wife is down there right now getting a house ready that we're moving to, and she's told me every day, I've gone to the store, and I haven't gone to the store once where someone hasn't stopped me just to, to just a quick little conversation. People talk to one another. Also, race relations is a real thing, that uh, just diversity is bigger, and, and I think my boys my, especially my two younger boys are, are uh, grade school age now, uh, just giving them a different environment, uh, a little different pace of life. Um, but I think uh, there's there's a lot they can learn down there about how to be a good human and how to connect with the community that I think not, they could do that anywhere, but I think it's going to afford them some better opportunities there. Um, and two, it's the first time in my life I've stretched myself to live outside of, of the of the Northwest. And, and I feel, and we've prayed a lot about this as a family and, and we came to have a lot of peace with this is, this is where we're to be. It's for our kids. I think for us and for the company, actually, uh, therapeutic associates has been very gracious, um, to lean in to see, I think there's something that's and COVID has helped us, but I could work remotely to do that. But I think there's something good about having a different perspective, uh, geographic perspective in our decisions. And so I'm, I'm interested to see uh, how that'll play out. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, best of luck to you uh, moving to that part of the country. And uh, and uh, the country is small. As you said, we can work from anywhere these days. And, um, you know, once we get out of COVID and we can travel again, uh, you're never too far away. That's for sure. Yeah. So uh, at, usually at this time of the interview, Chris, I usually ask a common question. And that question is in relation to leadership. What is a pearl of wisdom that uh, you can leave us with today? Uh, I think my biggest one, and I'll steal this from Lori Dillon, but it's this concept of uh, collaboration is not the same thing as collective. I think we do a lot of things as leaders that try to bring voices together with this thought that if we just bring a bunch of voices together, then we'll find something in the middle that everyone will kind of agree upon, or at least they won't dissent to, and that's that's going to be good. Um, I think we as leaders are really called to bring out perspectives of one another, sometimes get to get people to battle, sometimes 
get people to change perspective because they understand someone else's perspective, but all in the end, so that we have this thing at the end that was bigger than any one of us could have brought uh, ourselves. And, and I think if we can do that well as leaders, one, it's going to engage our staff, because like I said before, especially the millennials are pressing us on this to, to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, and, and give value back to society as, as, a, as a product of your work. Um, but also I think it's hard work to do because it, it can't happen passively. You have to proactively think about it and you can really um, uh, tire people if you do it too much. And so there's this sweet spot you gotta find, but if you can find it, I, I am, I'm a firm believer that, that we'll all be um, better off because of it. Well, Chris, thank you so much. That's so well said. And, uh, you know, I just look back on uh, our years together, working together, and, and I've learned so much from you, and I've learned so much from you today. So I really appreciate your time and your passion for what you do. Uh, it, it's an area that, uh, you know, I, I didn't always understand probably uh, uh, when I was in the CEO position, uh, but I, I appreciated it and respected it and knew that it's something we needed to dive into further. And you certainly have uh, driven that uh, as far as... Uh, probably anybody I've seen, at least in the PT profession, and I commend you for that. So best of luck to you and your family down in Nashville, and uh, continued uh, good luck with uh, working with Therapeutic Associates, and uh, um, you know, enjoy the holidays in this weird year of 2020. Yeah, you did the same. Thank you for your time, Steve. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com.